Okay, y'all, why don't you go ahead, turn to your bulletin or turn to your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. When I was, uh, our family moved from Houston, Texas. Oh, you know what we need to do? We need to do one other thing. I thought there was. That's why I instinctively grabbed the bulletin and then set it on that chair over there. Marcus, where are you? Come on, brother. Now, those of you that have been with us for these past couple of months know that we have been uh, training and installing new officers. Come on up here, bud. And Marcus, providentially, was, uh, was out of town, so he's back in town, so we're going to install him. So I'm going to ask him the questions that the other men have uh, responded to. Then we're going to have them come up, everyone that is an ordained officer in the church, if an elder or deacon, are going to come up and we're going to lay our hands on you and pray for you, and then officially pronounce you a deacon in this church, Okay. Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as originally given to be the inerrant word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice? I do. Do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith and the catechisms of this church as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures? And do you further promise that if any time you find yourself out of accord of any of the fundamentals of this system of doctrine, you will, on your own initiative, make known to your session the change which has taken place in your views since the assumption of this ordination vow. Do you approve of the form of government and discipline of the Presbyterian uh, Church in America in conformity with the general principles of biblical polity? Do. Okay. do you accept the office of deacon to this church and promise faithfully to perform all the duties thereof and to endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your life, to set a worthy example before the church of which God has called you and made you an officer? Do you promise subjection to your brethren in the Lord? Do you promise to strive for the purity, peace, unity, and edification of the church? Okay. Congregation. Here's the question to you, those that are members of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Do you, the members of this church, acknowledge and receive this brother as a deacon accordingly? And do you promise to yield him all the honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord to which his office, according to the word of God and the constitution of this church, entitle them? You can say, we do. Very good. Uh, Officers, elders, deacons that are out there in another church as well, come forward. We're going to lay hands on this dear brother. As we said to Rafer, I don't know if you were here when Rafer had his as well, Uh, just because all these men are praying for you, you don't get more of whatever happens up here, okay? All right, brother. Go ahead, let's lay our hands on those are able. Let me pray. Our great God, we thank you that you do love your church, and that, God, you sent your Son, your only Son, to lay down his life for your church. And then as you rose from the dead, Jesus, you ascended on high, and you have sent out and unleashed heaven and unleashed gifts to your church. And we acknowledge and receive gratefully the gifting and the calling and the office of being a deacon. Lord, it is one that is close, very close, to what you were all about, mercy. And so, Lord, we pray 
We pray that you would fill and anoint Marcus with your spirit to serve courageously, to serve gospelly, to serve mercifully in this church. And we pray so to the glory of your name, to the adorning of the mercy of the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. I now pronounce and declare that Marcus Hunsinger has been regularly elected, ordained, and installed as a deacon according to this church, agreeable to the word of God, according to the constitution of the Presbyterian Church in America, and that as they are entitled, he is entitled to all the encouragement, honor, and obedience of the Lord in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's give him the right hand of fellowship, brothers. <laughs> Pat on the backs are good, too. You can open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4, 1 through 7. Last week we looked at the whole passage. This week we're zeroing in on verse 6. Uh, We moved from Houston, Texas to Simsbury, Connecticut, my freshman year in high school. How would you like that? Huh? Going from the depths of Texas to the heights of and center of New England. Uh, Lots of adjustments for a a 15-year-old boy to make, especially trying to traverse the cultural waters of New England, new cultural waters. But one area that greatly helped this 15-year-old boy traverse the cultural waters was participating in sports. Now, there are some sports that are cross-cultural, as you know. Same in Connecticut, same in Texas. Football, good. Baseball, but then there are two sports that are specifically cultural to some areas of the country that are not down here in Texas. And the two that I learned of and participated in up there was wrestling and lacrosse. And I, uh, I know that it's slowly eking its way down here, and, I, and I, I hope it comes quickly. Those are two great sports. Uh, my new football coach uh, was also my new wrestling coach up there, and it was a fairly young program. And so all the players or the wrestlers from freshmen to seniors, uh, they were a lot of guys that were 170 pounds and down. There weren't guys that were 170, above 170 pounds. And so when I is, I am walking at that time as a freshman in my street clothes, walking around, my street weight, so to speak, was 155 pounds. I could not beat the senior at 155 pounds. I could not beat the senior at 170 pounds. There was no one to beat at the 187 pound, and there was no one to beat at the unlimited pound, which could be 188 pounds up to 500 pounds. Now, the closest thing I had to a big brother at the time was a guy named Bobby Anderson, and he was a junior. And he took me under his wing as a freshman, which was kind of rare. I mean, those of you that are in high school now, or those of you who have been in high school, it's not common, is it, for a junior or a senior to befriend and take under his wing a freshman? Especially someone who came down from, come up from a different part of the country, doesn't talk the way they talk, doesn't do anything like they do. But he did. He went on to play football in college and was a special forces operator in Panama with the Noriega thing. Well, anyway, 
It was up to Bobby and I to decide who wrestled at 187 and unlimited. So we had to wrestle off every week to see which one. The winner got 187, the loser was bumped up to unlimited. So we were all given up about 50 pounds no matter which way we went. We had wars every week. Can you imagine? Nobody wanted unlimited. We'd seen some of those guys. <laughs> Nobody wanted those guys. Now, Bobby and I can laugh now about that year of wrestling. Looking back, we can laugh. Not then. Not then. You could have taken us to any gym in the state of Connecticut, laid us on our back, had us blindfolded, took the blindfold off, and we could tell you where we were. We knew every set of lights of every gym in the state of Connecticut. <laughs> Bobby came to practice one day and he said, he said, he called me Tex. He said, Tex, I had a nightmare last night. And I said, really, Bobby, what was your nightmare? He said, man, I was on my back. That ref, you know that one ref? Yeah, I know that ref. That ref blew that loud whistle and then he did his round the world tour with his hand and he slapped the mat and I woke up in a cold sweat. I said, really? And he goes, yeah. And I realized I was laying on my back, so I quickly flipped to my stomach. <laughs> it was a humiliating year for both of us. At the end of the season, you have what's called the state tournament. Uh, the number one seed, not even before the tournament begins, the number one seed wrestles what's called the rat tail. Now, they're not worried about hurting little Johnny's feelings. The rat tail means you're the rat tail. You're the last seed in the state. You're the rat's Hail, going against the number one seat. Well, he and I, I was wrestling in the rat tail for the 187. He was wrestling in the rat tail for the unlimited. Now, the crazy thing about the both of us is we really thought, we really believed deep in our heart we were going to knock the number one seeds off. I'll never forget walking onto that mat, stepping onto the mat, saying to myself, go all out, be aggressive, make him fight for his life. Uh, the ref had to shake hands, blew his whistle, and I shot in. I surprised the daylights out of him. I had his leg. And then I went to rip and pull like you're supposed to, and he didn't budge. <laughs> and I realized I had a tree trunk that wasn't moving. After that, all I remember is fighting for my life on my back, hearing the horrible, terrifying shriek of the whistle and then that horrible thud of the hand slapping the mat again pinned again I walked off that mat disgusted with myself desperately desperately fighting the tears that were ready to break forth all my buddies and players came up to me the coaches came up to me tried to shake my hand tried to console me tried to do anything I walked right past them even Bobby came up to me and I said, get out of my face. I found a place on the other side of the bleachers. No one was there. I bowed my head and I cried. All the humiliation, shame, failure of losing for a whole season swallowed me up. And I knew at that moment, I can't keep doing this. I cannot take another loss. It is carving out my soul. It's cutting it to pieces. 
So I made a decision right then and there. My first year of a new sport, and I decided to quit. Now, have you ever wondered, you personally, have you ever wondered, what do you do when Christianity doesn't work for you? What do you do when Christianity doesn't fix you? Doesn't fix your marriage? Doesn't fix your children? Doesn't fix your broken relationships? Have you ever wondered, what do you do when Christianity doesn't work for you? When it doesn't fix the questions that you have, the fears that you have, the doubts that you have? What do you do? Have you ever wondered when Christianity doesn't fix other people's Problems and concerns that you care about greatly. Places that you deeply care about don't get fixed. Problems and situations that you deeply care about don't get fixed. What do you do when Christianity doesn't work for you? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Starting at verse 1, let's look at this together. I mean that as an heir, so he's continuing his thought of what he just said in 3, 23 to 29. As long as he is a child, he's no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers till the date set by his father. Now in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but you're a son. And if a son... Then you're an heir through God. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh Lord, I ask that you would unleash heaven. I ask that you would send forth your spirit to do what the passage says. We all need that. And we all need you. Would you give it and grant it because of the perfect, true Son of God? In his name we pray. Amen. Now, what do you do when Christianity doesn't work for you? Some of you are thinking, listen, I might be here in church, but I really don't believe that Christianity works at all. You possibly have grown up in the church. You possibly have grown up in a Christian family. And if you're honest with yourself, you know that Christianity has never taken for you. It never took in your life. It never deeply connected to you. It never hit your heart. Others of you, you didn't grow up in the church and you didn't grow up in a Christian home. The way you gathered information about Christianity is through the media. The way you've gathered thoughts about Christianity and your information about Christianity is through academic and intellectual circles. So for you, Christianity never took for you and you can't imagine it ever taken for anybody. Christianity is just not intellectually attractive. It's not feasible. 
Before we begin, I want you to consider one thing. Now, there are lots of things that I know you would like to have considered. Now, I love lunches, and I can give it a shot over lunch, so call me. Let's have lunch, and I'll see if we can attack all of them, deal with all of them. But there's one thing I want you to consider. What we are about to see in verse 6 is this, is that real Christianity is something we don't take hold of. No one takes hold of Christianity intellectually, morally, or spiritually. Please hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that Christianity is irrational, unintellectual, or immoral, or unspiritual. Far from it. What I am saying is that Christianity doesn't take in your soul, become real to you, connect deep in your heart because you worked it out intellectually in your mind morally in your will, spiritually in your soul. Real Christianity is not something you take hold of at all in any kind of attainment or achievement, intellectually, morally, or spiritually. Christianity is something that takes hold of you. And the biblical word for that is called grace. And what grace describes from the beginning of scriptures to the end of scriptures, it describes God's achievement. It describes something that God does, something that he's doing. It describes a God who's on the move in our life. Because that's the case, real Christianity is not received through strength, but weakness. It's not received through merit, but mercy. It's not received through ability, but inability. Now what we're going to do is we're going to zoom into verse 6, and we're going to see and pray that God takes hold of you. Okay? All right, the big question, we've got to give you, some of you are joining us, some of you have been here last week, you still got to understand what this whole passage is about. The big question of the whole passage, that means one through seven, is this. It's a simple question. Do you live like a slave or do you live like a son? That's the big question of one through seven. Verse six has its own mini point, and we're going to look at that in a second. But I want you to see that everything in verses one through seven is sprinting towards seven. Everything is getting down to, do you live like a slave or do you live like a son? So then, as the text says, you're no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then you're an heir through God. Now what Paul does is he borrows a Greco-Roman civil law in which wealthy landowners hired guardians to train their firstborn sons before they obtained official sonship and inherited all that wealth in that estate. These fathers, these wealthy landowners, as I mentioned last week, and I hope that you don't hear me doing it derogatory, they didn't want Paris Hiltons. They didn't want spoiled heirs. And so Paul, what he does in this passage is he connects living under the law to living under the guardian a rule-driven, disciplinarian life that's fully regimented in every area of your life. When you wake, when you eat, when you go to bed, what you study at school, what chores you have, do you do your chores? 
That's why they're always pictured with a big stick in the ancient photographs, well, not photographs, but paintings. Well, that would be something if it was a photograph, wouldn't it? Living under the law, according to Paul, is spiritual immaturity, spiritual infancy, spiritual slavery. And he gives two reasons for why that's the case. Now remember, he's giving two reasons. The first reason he gives through the big story lens of the Bible. Through the big story lens of the Bible, that's in verses 1 and 2, 4 and 5. Through the big story lens, he says, listen, the law was never, the law in the Bible was never meant to be the end or the goal of the Bible. Jesus Verses 4 and 5 has always been the end or the goal of the scriptures. Always the end or the goal of salvation history. This true son from above comes and he purchases, he obtains official sonship and cosmic inheritance for a bunch of disloyal orphans. For those who don't deserve it. Okay? Now, the second way Paul answers, why does living under the law look like living under a garden? He looks through the personal lens. Now, remember, there's two lenses. One deals with the big story of the Bible. The other deals with you in relation to God and me in relation to God and the Galatians in relationship to God. And this one, living under the law is spiritual slavery or infancy because living under the law is looking to your achievement, your attainment, your performance, your record to connect with God to leverage blessings from God and to ward off disaster in your life. Whether it be life situations, bad life situations, or whether it be bad relationships or bad stuff that happens in your life. Living under the law personally is slaving away for God. Now you don't have to be a religious person to live like a slave and that's what's so stunning that we saw last week in this passage because in verse 3 Paul makes this incredible claim about the ABCs of the world. You see the ABCs of the world are your heart and the way the law works in the world and with your heart. And what Paul does in verse 3 is he says, listen, whatever we look to to love us, whatever we look to to justify us, whatever we look to to give us acceptance, whatever we look to to give us life, controls us. Verse 3, enslaves us. Because whatever that is, it becomes your salvation. It becomes your Savior. So, if you're not a religious person, you can still live like a slave. We can slave away for our careers. We can slave away for money. We can slave away for people to love us and accept us. We can slave away for respect and significance. We can slave away for the boy to give us attention. We can slave away for romantic love. We can slave away for anything. So the point of 1 through 7 is, are you living like a slave or are you living like a son? All right. If living like a slave is being controlled by counterfeit saviors to try to find love, to try to be justify your existence, to try to obtain meaning in life, what does it look like to live like a son? All right, we got the slave down. 
Verse 6 gives us the answer. Now we're moving into the sub-point of verse 6. It's going to give us the answer of what it looks like to live like a son. So what does it look like? Verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There are exclamation points on that. This is not cold orthodoxy here. Exclamation point means an exclamation point. This is a fully felt reality. Abba, Father. Now the word Abba, well let me give you the answer then we'll look at that. What does living like a son really look like? Here's the answer. You ready? If you need to write it down, write it down. Living like a son looks like really believing really experiencing really connecting to the Father's great love for you that's what it looks like Abba is Aramaic Abba is what a deeply loved Middle Eastern son said to his father Abba Father perhaps the best translation is this Father dear Father The point here is that the son feels his father's love and acceptance. That's the point. The point here is that the son knows he's loved. It's real. It's reaching. And it's life restructuring for the son. So a slave lives his whole life Desperately trying to get loved and accepted. And a son lives his whole life knowing that he is. Last year, Skip Ryan, who was a part of our family coming to this church, I shouldn't say coming to this church because this church wasn't here. Coming to see if God would start a church, build a church here 11 years ago. He spoke to a bunch of us, former and present church planters in Dallas last year. And Skip pastored, pastored, past tense, Park City's Presbyterian Church, one of the largest PCA churches in the country and in the world. He shared with us his rough journey of living like a son, living like a slave while being a pastor of one of the most successful churches in the PCA. Towards the end of his message, this is what he said. Put down his notes. With deep, deep passion in his gut, he said, Fellas, your sole occupation as a Christian your reason for existing, your highest calling and goal as a Christian is not to do great things for God, but to be greatly loved by God. Abba, Father, Father, dear Father. Now, I know 
What about those of you who are thinking, man, I wish it was that simple. I live like a slave. I want to live like a son. But it doesn't happen. Christianity, Jeff, just doesn't work for me. And if I'm honest, I wonder if it really works for the person next to me. Or they're just smiling and pretending it does. No matter what I do, Christianity just doesn't work. I want you to notice, I want you to notice in verse 6, the word sent in verse 6. Look in verse 6. Look at the word sent. Now those of you that listened last week, this is the exact same word in verse 4 for when God sent his son. This is a Trinitarian snapshot of what God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit do. Now I want you to see that word sent. See it? Now look in verse 4. There's that word sent. Look in verse 6, that word sent. The word sent or sent forth means the exact same thing. And what that word means is to be officially sent on a mission. So here it is. In verse 4, God officially sends Jesus on a mission to make sons. Now in verse 6, He sends and He turns to the Holy Spirit and He sends, You've got a mission. And He sends Him out. Now don't miss what His mission is. His mission is is directly targeted at you. Not only that, it's directly targeted at your heart, at the control center of your very being, at the deepest parts of whoever you are. The mission is there. And the mission is to make you believe you're a son. The mission is to make you feel greatly loved and fully accepted by God himself. The mission is to make you enter into the treasures of the gospel and to believe them really, deeply as a Christian. That's his mission. The Holy Spirit's mission is to take hold of you so that you genuinely sincerely in the deepest parts of your gut say Abba Father Father dear Father so how should we respond to this how do we respond to this how do What do we do with that? You know what we do? I think the answer is it's not stated clearly in the text. But it is indirectly. When the Spirit is sent on a mission into your heart, you cry, you pray, you believe, you experience, you connect with the love of God. I think the application here is what do you do? Ask for it. Ask God to send the Spirit on that mission into your heart. Ask God to win you over and over and over again with His great love and acceptance of you in Christ. 
ask God to convince you that what Jesus did in verses 4 and 5, what He did really took. Ask God to do that. Because asking is the way of grace. Asking is the way of inability. Asking is the way of not meriting. Asking is the way of weakness. Asking is the way of grace. You know, in Jesus' darkest hour before the cross, he was in a garden that was called Gethsemane. Some of you are familiar with the story, some of you are not. Mark is the one that works on the story that I'm talking about. He was in the garden called Gethsemane, and he was anticipating what was about to happen to him in a few hours. Uh, in a few hours, Jesus, the true Son of God from above, was about to be cut off from the love of God. The true Son of God, who has from all eternity, God Himself, second person in the Trinity, was about to be cut off from the love of God. And the reason why he was about to be cut off is because he was going to trade places with people who deserved to be cut off. He was going to trade places with people who slave away for all kinds of counterfeit gods and saviors all the time. And he was going to take their place and be cut off. When he was anticipating this agony... The agony was so deep in his soul that it erupted physically in his body and he started sweating profusely blood. Now those of you that are doctors, I don't know how you explain that. You probably do. But you've got to know that there's enough agony going on in the spirit that it would manifest itself in blood coming out the pores of his flesh. And in that dark hour, do you know what Jesus said? In that darkest hour of his life before he actually was cut off he said Abba Father what kind of God would cut off a son like that the scripture only gives us one answer because this kind of God loves the unlovely. This kind of God loves the messed up. This kind of God loves slaves. And he loves them so much that he wants Jesus' words on your lips and in your heart. Abba, Father, After, almost immediately, after making that dark, dark decision to quit wrestling, I sent someone close by. Someone put their arm around me, the loser, the quitter. Someone was willing to identify themselves with me, associate themselves with me. Someone had to get up in front of everybody and go walk and find the loser. And say, yeah, 
I'm with the loser. I'm with the one that just got pinned as a rat tail. And the someone was there and he didn't say a word for a while. The someone just stood there with the loser. And then the someone said these words to me. You're okay, Tiger. You're a state champion in my book. You'll get them next year. Yeah, Dad. You're right. I will get them next year. All you need, brothers and sisters, is the love of your Father. That's all you need. That's what works in Christianity all the time. Even though nothing else works.